0: Okay, so we are uh, recording here. So um, the way I thought I thought this morning, like how to begin the class, and especially drawing upon um, your thoughtful comments and feedback uh, um, to the podcast and my discussion with Professor O'Reilly, the way I thought about framing this was in the context of, you know, this intermixing of simplicity and complexity, right? How understanding the colonialism. And in more broadly, but specifically colonialism in Korea as this interplay of something that is on the one hand quite simple um and on the other hand quite complex. and, and what do I mean by that? Well, on one hand, it, it's simple in terms of, you know it's not very mysterious. Um, uh, Japan, as we discussed with professor Riley for for perhaps several reasons or multiple reasons or conflicting reasons,, um, uh, decided that it was, you know, they, to take it upon themselves to colonize Korea. And where it becomes simple is they simply had the power to do it, right? They had the technology, they had the weapons, they had the, not just like physical technology, but also organizational technology, bureaucratic technology, right? We, we often think of technology as just computers or missiles or, or tanks or what have you, ships. Um, and that's part of it. But also um, one of the key aspects of kind of Modern technology, which is a theme we're going to pick up in our coming discussion of colonial modernity, is how to organize human beings in, in a kind of systematic bureaucratic way, right? And that's something that the Meiji government was able to facilitate in Japan. And centralizing power is a technology, right? Um, you know, Tokugawa, Japan was defer- diffuse power, different nodes, different competing rivalries, and the Meiji government effectuated through bureaucratic means a centralization of power. That is technology right how to organize and deploy um not to sound too cold human resources be it bureaucrats soldiers what have you and um japan the japanese government had that power so it's simple in that sense they could do it right now again that's not that's morality and and the ethics of it is a whole different question but in the, in some ways it, that's the simple side like if if, if japan didn't have the power if Korea had a larger army or, or more bureaucratic organization or centralization then they couldn't do it. All right. so it's simple in that way. I mean we can you know put everything else aside and and there's complex reasons and complex ethical questions um, obviously, but at the base it is very simple. they had the means to do it. Um, people within within power decided they want to do it and therefore they did it and that's in some ways that wrote power Right, Um, and this this harkens to a famous line in Plato's Republic from Thrasymachus, right? Thrasymachus objects to this discussion of justice in the abstract, and Thrasymachus famously said that the strong will do as they please, and the weak will accept as they must. And there you go, right? So that's the simple aspect, right? And and we can't, you know, and that is important. We can't lose sight of that. That underlying all of this stuff is the simple idea that one society had power to do this. Uh, and I said that doesn't that is not to say it was ethical or or just. And I think right, we would say that that, that that's a whole another set of questions that leads to the complexity, which would be the moral questions, the ethical questions, and, and also the kind of multiple layers of social interaction, social change, um, social transformation that takes place within a colonial context and something we've come up over and over again is the kinds of choices that it made Koreans face. If we're going to center kind of the Korean experience, whether they were, Koreans were rich or poor or, or farmers or industrialists or what have you, they all had to confront difficult questions tied to living under colonialism. Right? How should I react? Right? and and the fact that every Korean on some level, even all the way down to, to village people at the village, all the way to again, wealthier people living in cities or former Yangban or what have you, all had to confront that question and that, that has profoundly shaped um, the nature of Korean society um, at that time and moving forward, right And I think that's something that and 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 obviously, as I discussed with Professor O'Reilly, something that profoundly and in complicated ways, affected Japanese society and still affects Japanese society um, in many ways, right? Via the the hundreds of thousands of Japanese citizens who um, either as bureaucratic officials, or as we talked about people, entrepreneurs, trying to make business, trying to, you know, make a new life, get rich in in the kind of opportunities that presented themselves in colonial Korea, right? Um, uh, To the, um, hundreds of thousands, and at one point, nearly millions of Koreans who came to Japan and in some ways became, um, uh, I think, almost now, not the largest or the second largest. I believe Chinese um, uh, uh, are, the, are the largest ethnic minority in Japan, but almost you know the second largest ethnic minority um, within Japanese society. I'm not sure about that, so we'll, we'll table that for now. But um, the, the broader point is that those are all... Processes in complexities that affected Japan, right? And so, um, and this is something that we you know, found its way into, and this is something that came out in the reading. I know it was a, a longer and more perhaps somewhat difficult reading. I hope you tried to get through it because I think it was really important um, for a lot of reasons because it does point out when we talk about complexity, we're talking about politics, um, economics, uh, again, ethical and moral questions, um, uh, um, you know, social relations. Identity, art, literature, right, culture—all of these things are are integrated and interrelated, and were and, and were subject to the um, kind of extreme pressures that colonial domination puts on a society. And and this is where we can circle back to this idea of Korean history being integrated with world history because. Think about how much, you know, digging into the story of Korea and colonization in Korea, think about how much we've been able to kind of consider and and uncover and unpack. And then think about that the hundreds of times over around the world that colonialism took place, right, in in the various communities and societies. That colonialism is an integral part of understanding the modern world, right, however one wants to think about it, right? And so, um, you know, this is again, I'm advocating this kind of inside out approach to um uh korean history korean history as world history by digging into the specific kind of small you know granular aspects of korea's experience as a colonial as a colonial entity um and colonial domination is also a way to um, think about broader global affairs right because of course colonialism played out differently um everywhere but it also again going back to that simplicity at the same time all colonial enterprises Derived from power imbalances and rote domination, right? That that's the that's the basis of all colonial systems, right? Okay, so um, that's kind of the you know how I want to open this up is thinking about again how do we understand and I think that the the debate that was covered in the reading for today, colonial modernity, right? In this discussion, um, is also again something that is very relevant to thinking about. Debates among scholars, Korean historians, Korean studies experts, people who like me who study Korean political economy, right? Um, colonial modernity is still very relevant, but it's also a broader global debate about how, again, massive, I, 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 you know, I keep kind of like saying this huge, but think about these two huge forces, modernity as this universal kind of colliding with colonialism as this kind of form, specific form of domination, that mixed Wrote political power with this notion of a kind of ethical bearing, because all colonial systems mixed that right. Like it was based on power, but often presented itself as this ethical thing. I'm reading it right now, a, a biography of John Maynard Keynes, um, who is considered kind of one of the great progressive economists. But he, in in his you know in his 20s and 30s, was saw the British Empire as actually a force for liberty and democracy, right? So even someone who is considered kind of a left-wing intellectual um, and a left-wing intellectual hero um, in the in the in the early 20th century 19 you know early 1900s saw British colonialism as something that was a force for good, right? And we, we have perhaps more, and some people still make that argument, right? Um, so uh, I I tend not to be too persuaded personally, but I I'm one person, you know. I mean, I don't have the ultimate say on this. I mean, there. There's this, uh, Niall Ferguson is a famous, um, you know, kind of, I guess, economic historian. uh, It would be his kind of thing. And he wrote a kind of defense of British colonialism in India, right? So all is a way to say that, you know, these are are debates that are going on, ongoing into the present day and um, uh, are important for understanding both Korean history and what happened and, and, more, and most importantly thing, what how we interpret the effects of colonialism and modernity coming together um, in one place, right? And this goes all the way back to the first week of the course where we said like what we're doing in this course or you know the kind of thread that's going through is this idea of a search for Korean modernity, right? What is modern and what is Korean and how do those things fit together? And colonialism is this massive kind of force that interweaves itself in that big question that we're asking throughout the course. What is colonialism? Right? I'm sorry. What is modernity? What does it mean to be Korean? And how do those two fit together? Right. And so we can we can think about that. And I think all post-colonial societies come in and confront those same questions. And this is a point where I I you know implore you to to remind, you know, to remember that colonialism as a global enterprise, including Korea, is not did not end that long ago. Korea, of course, it ended fairly dramatically in 1945. And that's important in and of itself. We'll talk about that starting next week, um, which is still not that long ago, right? I think 70 years, right? Um, which is not as, you know, that may seem ancient, but think about, you know, your grandparents or certainly your grandparents' grandparents were um, alive at that time, right? So it's people you know, new people who lived during that period, right? So think about it that way, right? And if we're talking about colonialism in, in, um, in Sub-Saharan Africa or even in um, Southeast Asia, we're talking about into the 50s and 60s, right? And we're getting closer. Certainly your grandparents were alive, right? Um, you know, And I was born in 1977. There were still several colonial states in sub- Southern Africa, I'm not that old. I'm here. Look at me. Look how young I am. (laughs) Right. But you see what I'm saying, right? Like, so uh, all is a way to say that we shouldn't think of colonialism as like, I think we have, it, it can be in our minds of like, yeah, that's something so long ago. And that is why we still need to think about how, you know, how the colonialism is like a trajectory, like going this way and it bounces and, where where has it taken the world, right? And I think the questions we're looking at in Korea today with colonial modernity are central to Korea and what we're going to be doing, but it's also central to understanding global history. And, and I think those two are deeply interrelated, which I've been trying to make the case for throughout the term. Okay, so let's jump here to the notes. Okay, so um, that's the theme for today, making sense of post-colonial Korea. Um, And hopefully I will take about 20, maybe 30 minutes tops to get through this. And then I want, I think there's a really important um, questions and and questions that you already brought out in your thoughtful comments. Those of you who commented for class this week. So I'm hopefully going to turn it over to you guys to kind of weigh in on some of these really um, important questions surrounding this, you know, the way I'm, the topic I'm using to frame are, because the theme this week, right, is how do we make sense of all this? Right. What, what, you know, how do we understand this as a whole. So we've tried to break colonialism down into um, its different periods and, and thinking about it in terms of elites and then also the experiences of everyday people, um, not just in my discussions and in, in the student led classes, but also in terms of the readings and and so forth. Right. And so um, now we're going to take, you know, take a few steps back and try to think about it as a whole. And one of the ways to do that, as the reading points out in Korea and elsewhere, is this motif of colonial modernity. And here we are back thinking about modernity. And colonial modernity goes out of a kind of simple notion of, of thinking of modernity as somewhat universal. If we think of in the extent that we think of modernity as um, increased industrialization, increased urbanization, um, increased mechanization, right? Um, Increased centralization of power within what we call now the nation-state or the state. Um, there's a certain universal component of modernity, right? As a process that has been, you know, at varying levels and in varying ways, borne out in pretty much every corner of the world, right? Um, save maybe for a few places, right? Um, and colonial modernity, as you know, for most colonial societies, these processes of modernity were entwined with colonial domination right and so colonial modernity is an idea of trying to investigate how those things interact and it's also approach that the reading points out it has many critics right people who are critical of it and um potentially the some of the implications or ethical or moral implications that it draws um you know that can be drawn from it so um and in, in some, and this is, you know, just to highlight these are some of these are points made in the reading. So just to to summarize, right? The colonial modernity um on one level tries to embrace complexity, right? So we talked about simplicity and complexity as a kind of motif, right? Um, and colonial modernity is is going to argue that it's better to think about the this interaction between colonialism and modernization, quote unquote. Um by moving beyond binaries such as oppressed and oppressors, freedom fighters and collaborators, right, and in embracing complexity, right. So in the Korean context, um, this is going to look at everything from Korean capitalism, like how capitalism and uh, or or um, you know economic developments and political economic developments all the way to literature and the complex interactions of everyday life right? That colonial modernity is, again, about embracing complexity and, and multiple layers of identity, right? I mean, I, think about, again, how we talked about Park Chung-hee and Kim Il-sung as kind of stand-in representations because they would become these central figures in Korean history, but think about what they represent in terms of identity formation. You know, being trying to be you know, sharing these notions of being a Korean nationalist and then how to respond to that within kind of a colonial context. And we can see that Pak Chung-hee and Kim Il-sung took very different routes. But again, think about that over a million times and over and over with the various people with across the Korean peninsula and those kinds of decisions. And colonial modernity is, is trying to investigate that, right? What if you're a writer? Right? I have a book about colonial writers and Korean writers during the colonial period? How do you process all this as a writer, as an artist, not just as a politician or a a worker, but, you know, how does this affect your literature, right? And so colonial modernity tries to embrace this complexity, right? And they often present themselves as a corrective to overly nationalistic historiography, right? Historiography is actually the um, study of how history is created and made, right, as an academic discipline, right? What, you know, it's kind of thinking it's it's an academic study of the production and creation of what we call history, right? And, and colonial modernity argues that historiography, right, the creation of Korean history um, has been too beholden to overly nationalistic renderings, right? That it doesn't present enough nuance and balance, right? And so advocates for this approach um, argue that they, and this is really key, and this is highlighted also in the reading, right? That that it's important to separate the intentions of colonial authorities from the transformations that went along with colonialism, right? That it can be, you know, the colonial modernity school argues that it on one level, we're trying to understand what, how Korean society was transformed above and beyond the intentions. Like, sure, probably the Japanese colonial authorities, their intentions were to do things that would help what they saw was good for Japan, right? We talked about that's a kind of another core simple feature of colonialism. It's a colony. It's supposed to help us. Its value is in what it does for us as, as the dominating society, be it agric- be it natural resources, human resources what have you of being a buffer state, whatever it's, you know, a, a key aspect of colonialism, again, is that it's meant to be in service of what the colonial power needs from that as a resource, right? That's the key word I'm looking for, a resource. And so they'll say, okay, sure. Like maybe the intentions were not good or maybe they were bigoted or maybe they were, you know, not very ethically sound, but they would say that we have to separate that from the what specific social, political, and economic transformations actually occurred, and to be clear, what you know, colonial modernity as a school of thought, as a as a um, academic kind of discourse, is not saying that colonialism was good for Korea, right? That we need to be clear on that, like, because this can be this is very again, this is where we want to be kind of nuanced thinkers about this, right? And we have to, this is where hopefully for all of its flaws, a kind of more academic scholarly approach can help us kind of deal with complexity. And so what colonial modernity is saying is that certainly they're not saying, oh, look, colonialism was good for Korea. What they are saying is that um, many of the outcomes that we can see during the colonial period are in line with you know, and fall under what we would call this kind of rubric of modernity, which again is, is complicated to define in and of itself. And that this becomes particularly heated in the context of trying to understand um, and debates about the sources of um, Korea's, uh, South Korea's economic rise in the 1960s and 70s um, that made South Korea now one of the largest and and most important um, economic powers, certainly in East Asia, but also um, globally. But we'll we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, um, critics of this approach argue that um, in pursuit of trying to understand complexity, it masks, right? It obscures the fundamental structural oppression that covers, that colors nearly every aspect of colonial life, right? That colonial modernity, says, well, we're just looking for complexity, right? And we're, we're just trying to understand this complex. And, and for critics, they would say, even these complex relations were, were underpinned by an ultimate system of oppression. And that whatever took place always took place under the lens, uh, through the lens of, of oppression and domination. And you can't, you can't separate those out. And so as much as you want to understand complexity, again, they want to focus on the simplistic fact that this was about power and domination right? And they would argue that colonial modernity makes an air of confusing correlation with causation. So this is from, um, I believe this is the advanced reading for this week. I'm sorry, I, I did it. I, I think this is, or was last week. I'm, I'm sorry for not remembering that. Um, that, you know, Lee argues in, in a book that critiques colonial modernity, that even if colonialism and modernization happen to take place simultaneously in Korea, it would be a mistake to look at the relationship as being causal. So what Lee and critics of colonial modernity will say is that yes, colonialism and modernity in Korea took place temporarily in time-wise at the same time, but the to extrapolate from that some sort of cause, right? And so the, the kind of critics they would say is that actually colonialism distorted an already process of modernization that was undergoing in Korean society and was undergone undergoing everywhere that they would say look the aspects of modernity in terms of you know improved technology urbanization improved industrial output improved centralization and organization and, and what have you those are going on everywhere no matter what that this this turned this proved to be a way to provide much more resources to society so by and large not all most societies um, at least elites in a society were trying to adopt this. Now, I'm not trying to, modernity is, is obviously has a lot of problems, um, global warming and and pollution and, and, uh, and a whole host of issues. So I'm not trying to, but what Lee is saying a lot of these things were undergoing everywhere already. And from their perspective, then um, uh, um, colonialism distorted Korea's modernity rather than created Korea's modernity that's again see so we're getting into nuance here right um that that they're saying that that's a, a very important difference and just in in and just because they happened at the same time doesn't mean that one caused the other and they would say look at korean society in the late joseon period right so now we're going back to that and that period becomes an intense location for debates in this korean historiography debate that late joseon period right was that was that a period that reflected a declining and inept and, and kind of um, uh, rigid and unchangeable Joseon system that needed to collapse? Or does that period represent that internally Koreans were capable of already in the process of recognizing shortcomings within their society and propelling you know and, and engaging with quote unquote modernizing reforms? Right, and so that last twenty or thirty years of Joseon Dynasty is is a central point of contestation in these debates, and hopefully, um, you know, we can see why it was important to really dig into those debates about reform and and what that meant and what was a really nature, right? And and that's what you know here we mention is it, it those are really central to those kinds of discourses and discussions, and many of these debates um, arose in the context of trying to explore the foundations of. um. South Korea's rapid industrialization beginning in the 1960s, right, and, and so as I've met, as I alluded to before, um, uh, you know, Carter Eckert, who has been uh, on on the um, advanced reading list, right, uh, wrote a major work in 1991 that tries to trace um, the origins of Korea, South Korea's um, economic rise and development uh, um, to. The influences, again, not because Japan was trying to help Korea and eventually South Korea become this economic power, but through the unintentional effects um, brought about Korea's um, rapid, South Korea's rapid economic development. There's a lot of people, again, who argue against that and say, well, it doesn't make sense that there was this 15-year lag period. Um, North Korea was also the, was the site of most industrial development in the Japanese colonial regime. Um, and so it wouldn't make sense if, if the Japanese colonial system was so important, you would expect it to be more effect, have more effects in North Korea, not South Korea, which was largely agricultural, so on and so on. But here's the deal. Those are the debates where we're going to really, really dig into um, in PLS 363, 363 Developmental Politics in South Korea, which um, this year will be offered in the winter. So, uh, if you want to continue on this journey and and really dig into this and and so forth, um, that I highly recommend to um, take the course this winter. Uh, okay, so hopefully, if I've done my job here, I think I I you know you might have been like listening and be like, wow, development uh, colonial modernity. Sounds really good. Wow, what? Who could argue with that? That makes sense. And then you're like, wow, maybe it is a problem, right? I've tried to give them both their best case, right? Colonial modernity and its critics, right? And and I'm hoping to turn it over for you guys to debate. But if I've done my job, hopefully I've I've started you with like this idea that colonial modernity seems pretty solid in, in a great way to look at it. And then by introducing its critics, made you say, well, hold on, maybe maybe that's not maybe there is some problems with colonial modernity, right? Because lying behind all of this, and this is something that the reading talks about, right? Is this like, well, I think the critics of colonial modernity are always suspicious that it can be misused, right? That this can be abused, that we, it's a slippery slope from saying, well, Japanese colonialism provided these kinds of, in, you know, even if not intentionally, these um, aspects of modernity that later would benefit um, colonial Korea or colonial Taiwan or or what have you that that can slippery be be appropriated into this idea. Well, look, Japanese colonialism was good for Korea, and it was ultimately because that's an ethical question. See, this is this is where it gets really nuanced, and this is where if you want to be sharp social thinkers, this is where you want to say, well, hold on, where's you know where's the line between a a, a quote unquote objective analysis and an ethical judgment? And it's a very very Thin line, right? And, and and if you ask me, what lies behind all of these disputes around colonial modernity is is that thin that question of where is tech, what is technical and what is ethical and moral judgment? And I think the critics of colonial modernity and critics of of, of people like Carter Eckert, um, who I, again his book is is uh, made a huge um, has a huge amount of influence on these debates, um, is that idea that this tech this quote unquote objective judgment be easily appropriated and, and shifted to an ethical judgment about saying, well, Japanese colonialism was good for Korea. Okay. So our, our final turn here, the long shadow of colonialism, right? Uh, and um, if we think about Japan's deep involvement in Korean affairs, then we really can think about a period of almost 70, uh, of almost 70 years, right? Um, from 1876 to 1945. Right. That, that, I think, also helps take a step back. And that's something that the reading also does is say, well, let's let's take it go all the way back. And if we think about you know 1876 uh, to 1945, this roughly 70 year period, um, that is a, a, it gives us a more holistic understanding and a broader understanding of the profound effects and the numerous ways that Japan's interaction with Korean society um, has had effects on contemporary Korea both the ROK, South Korea, and the DPRK, North Korea, and on the ultimate division of Korea, which part of that, and and I'm foreshadowing what we're going to start talking about next week, a lot of the, uh, you know, some of the basis for the division that began to emerge was between these ideas of who did what, who's a a true uh, freedom fighter, who's the true guardian of Korea, right? Who speaks for Korea in a post-colonial context? And, and those debates, as the great historian of Korea, Bruce Cummings, who we're going to encounter his work, um, noted, great saying not that he was right because he advances some controversial positions, but great in terms of his the breadth and influence of his work, um, uh, points out that one's status and one's position in post-colonial Korea was going to be basically in some ways, determined by what they did during the colonial regime, right? And that is where, again, the long shadow, right? That colonialism doesn't just end. It's not like an event. It's not like a start and stop. It's not like an on and off switch, right? It is a massive set of processes that continue to ricochet Decades and decades into the future. And the debates and the court cases and all of the disputes going on now between Japan and Korea within Korean society itself, um, between North and South Korea, are all kinds of manifestations of that long shadow and these ricochet effects. And it's always important to keep in mind, right, that this very nature of colonialism, right, tends to reduce the colonized and colonial territory to means to meet a set of specific ends, right? And so this is just a summation of points we've made continually, right? And 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 a way to think about the period as a whole, that the changing nature of um the colonial enterprise in Korea very much reflected what the Japanese Empire and their their arm of the GGK, the government general Korea, was in part a function of what Korea was seen in terms of being a resource, and so this, you know, to to kind of put this all together, 1910 to 1919 resource extraction, 1920s industrial development in a site of investment for Korean um, companies and the utilization of Korean labor, um, and in 1931 to 1945, um, roughly right, industrial labor and soldiers, right, were were kind of the the um, you know, the, there's other things this is, but this is to give the kind of core essence of what, you know, Korea was seen as, as a colonial resource. And this is going back to what I've, I've, I've just been discussing and in, in previewing what we'll be talking about um, in the next few weeks. Colonialism produces deep schisms within the colonized society that continued decades after liberation, right? That this schism is a, a word that means kind of a a break. It's actually has a, a, a religious connotation between different schools of religious interpretation. Like a schism is a, is a profound divide, a profound break in, in colonialism. And that's something that is true in Korea and elsewhere, right? It shouldn't be a shock that one thing that tends to and has often followed colonialism is civil wars. And um, to the extent that the Korean War was a civil war. Uh, another case. Right. And, and we can see that in post-colonial societies in the Vietnamese War. Now, of course, the Cold War plays a role in a lot of these. But the core basis for the Civil War um, are rooted in the kinds of divisions that emerge out of colonial systems. Right. And Korea, there was a quite, you know, this division was quite literal um uh, uh as a divide between active resistance mild accommodation accommodation and full on collaboration right that that these are kinds of three stances that people took in reacting co- to colonial rule helped to shape the nature and divide that emerged between north and south in the immediate post colonial period and eventually the korean war right and so of course th- that's not the only cause of the korean war but that is certainly a a Basis of of dispute that helped to create the context for a divided Korea. That is certainly the case. Um, and this is also, as we've noted, a great deal of division within South Korea to this day about this period and about uh, you know who was held account, who wasn't held account. I mean, all the way to give you an idea, right? Um, President No Mu Hyun who was elected in 2003 and was president from 2003 to 2007 which is you know just over 15 years ago um convened a truth and reconciliation commission in part to investigate the lack of holding to account those those Koreans um particularly industrialists who collaborated with the japanese right that the, and this is something we're going to talk more about but just to give you a preview right that these issues continue to be debated and create resentment in Korean society. I have a book um, by Nancy Abelman. That's it, a really interesting um, anthropological look at people in South Korea after democratization, trying to get land back from companies who, who collaborated with the colonial regime to appropriate people's land right? A Korean company that still operates today, there was huge town hall meetings and protests about people trying to reclaim land that was appropriated from them by Korean companies under the auspices of colonialism. And this was just in the 1990s, right? So all a way to say that these things created schisms within both North and South Korea, but certainly within South Korea, right? And, you know, I don't, you know, I think this is something we can, we can discuss in, you know. Today and, and, and moving forward, and, and these are issues that came up in my discussion with Professor O'Reilly, um, but the best way, and I don't know, you know, that the most enduring and tragic outgrowth of cor- colonialism in Korea and elsewhere is that it creates an irrevocably changed society seeking justice, right? That a society that goes into a colonial system comes out forever changed, and you can't go back. Um, there's a saying that, you know, it was common saying where I grew up, the toothpaste is out of the tube. Right. Once you squeeze toothpaste out of the tube, you can't put it back in. Right. Once a society undergoes colonialism, it will never be the same. It's forever changed. Right. And and it can never go back. And it's seeking justice. Right. And that justice, if it's defined as going back, if it's defined as repairing, as changing what has happened, it's unobtainable. And that's a tragedy, right? It's almost like a tragedy in the Greek sense, right? That societies that have undergone colonialism, like Korea. Want back what was taken from them, and it can never be given back. Right? It's it's something that can't be changed, um, and it can never and it can never be, um, uh, you know, constructed by the colonized or granted by the colonizer. And that's something that um, a, a society who, had, in in this case, Japan, who has colonized another, or the Japanese Empire, right, um, can never give what the colonized society wants if justice is defined by fixing what has been broken or fixing what has been changed or, or changing back, it's impossible. And so you end up in a kind of impasse and that doesn't mean, I'm not trying to say there's no hope, but I think that helps us understand why there's this constant impasse because what is sought can never be really granted. Right. And I I know that's somewhat sad and depressing, but, Um, I think it's important for understanding and someone we had talked last week about the emotions involved. And this is where emotions and feelings and sense cannot be just ignored or considered irrational. These are people who have undergone suffering, who have undergone pain, who have undergone trauma. And that's not some source of like irrational, like, you know, just, you know, kind of to be dismissed as, as kind of overly emotional. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't ways to kind of overcome this impasse but clearly that's proven very difficult um for both korean and japanese society right and and this isn't i think for me it's and i i'm neither korean nor japanese obviously i have you know familial ties to korea and i i've lived in japan for 6 years and that this will be my home for the foreseeable future so um i like it here as well um particularly akita so i am but and and so i don't i want to be clear i'm giving kevin's perspective i don't want to, i'm not giving the foreign perspective or the neutral outsider perspective um is that um uh i think you know the, a whole new paradigm for how this is understood within korean and japanese society needs to be developed. And I don't know what that is per se, but the paradigm that both societies have tended to um present this as has 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 created a a constant source of, of mistrust and and both sides feeling that the other is acting in bad faith and not really trying to heal, but only to vilify. And, and there's that kind of mutual mistrust. And I don't know where um, that trust comes from. I do think an extremely complicating factor that perhaps is not as appreciated in Japanese society—not fully, but in, in as a general sense—is how much the era of dictatorship and and the and the way the dictatorship suppressed any discussion of the colonial period um, uh, has profoundly affected. How this is discussed and in the context of it in South Korea, right? That it was like if colonialism, it was one kind of um, distortion or radical change. um, The decades of harsh and very violent and controlling authoritarian rule in South Korea, um, and the you know inability to discuss and the and the kind of state enforced silence. Profoundly, you know, was another layer of complexity added onto this, right, in terms of South Korean society. And certainly, North Korean society is a whole nother story that we're going to um, dig into um, uh, in the last section of the course. So, um, I hope uh, we we certainly, this is a survey course, as I said in the beginning. And so, um, what we try to do is uh, mix having to move through a long period of time, but also, you know, identify what is most crucial and i do hope that um uh whatever you think about the colonial period you you feel that you have a little bit better understanding about it um than when we went into um this period that's i guess the best um i can hope for